Welcome to the Australia Indonesia Centre and our In Conversation webinar on public health policy responses to coronavirus, a discussion between Indonesia and Australia. I'd like to start by paying our respects to the traditional owners of the land and acknowledging the Kulin nations on whose land the centre stands in Melbourne. I would also like to acknowledge the Yagara and Turrbal traditional peoples on whose lands our guest panellist in Brisbane, Professor Charles Jilks, is talking to us from. We're talking about the coronavirus again, and how can we not? It is such an incredible event globally. And of course, here at the Australia Indonesia Centre, we're interested in what the two countries can learn from each other about it. Now, as you know, we've had a discussion about the economics, and there are more of those discussions to be had. Of course, the other important aspect is the impact on people's health and the way that government and policy officials are responding to this pandemic. So we're going to have a chat about that today. We're going to look at the different types of public health policy that are being applied, how they fit with the scientific evidence or the the past evidence. Uh, what are scientists trying to tell the government about the best way to go forward? How do we manage the coronavirus in countries where there are disparities of wealth, where there is inequality, and where perhaps not all the measures enacted are going to work quite the same? Are the measures timely? Are they effective? We'll also be talking to an expert in viral transmission uh, to get a bit of a better understanding of what might be going on. So much is not known about this COVID-19 virus. Could you um, please join me in welcoming our three guest speakers? We have Dr. Sudirman Nasir, who is a senior lecturer at Universitas Hazanudin in Jakarta. We have Professor Charles Jilks, who's the head of the School of Public Policy at the University of Queensland, uh, an expert in infectious diseases. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor. And we have Dr. Yulia Sophia Tin, who's a lecturer in epidemiology from Universitas Pajajaran. Thank you very much for your time today, Ibu, as well. So as you can see, three learned people to take us through, and we've already received a couple of questions, which is fantastic. We'll be asking for questions a bit later on as well. Now, before we go into the discussion, I wanted to set the scene a little bit because so much has been happening in the past week in Indonesia and Australia. Uh, in Indonesia, there was an initial move at the end of March where a, um, a state of emergency was declared and, and public places, many of them were shut down. It was advised that people work from home. We've seen then that the messages moved through from, say, a recommendation or a suggestion to enforcement through something known as the PSBB. Now, this means that uh, officials can move stronger against gatherings of people. They can uh, put in place measures just to stop workplaces from not allowing people to work from home. And uh, these regulations are very similar to the ones we see in Australia, where they put restrictions on movement except those in essential sectors, such as the financial, fuel, food, medicine and retail. Interestingly for Indonesia, they have banned the large-scale movement of people, the annual traditional going home to your village known as Mudik. Now, this only happened in the past week and there was a lot of conversation around that. This is where you see tens, of, hundreds of millions of people moving around the country. So we'll discuss the impact of that government decisions. Um, religious leaders have also stepped in now too and given some guidance to people who, are, who were concerned about not being able to go to a mosque to pray, for instance. We'll cover those areas. And we'll talk to, uh, we've got two doctors uh, in our guest list, which is fantastic. We're going to talk to them about what's been happening in the scientific community around government policy and uh, the sorts of concerns they've perhaps had in the past. We are, as I mentioned, also joined by Professor Charles Jilks, who is an expert in infectious diseases and transmission. And he's going to give us some perspective on the measures that have been taken in Australia and how they apply to the science of these sorts of outbreaks. So without uh, further ado, let's get going. And Dr. Sudi, if I could ask you first, given that there have been so many changes in the past week on government policy around how to protect the health of Indonesians, what changes have you seen 
in Indonesia since those announcements? I think in the last uh, few weeks, we start to see some uh, improvement in government uh, responses as well as uh, community participation for uh, several preventative uh, measures. Uh, law enforcement in relation to uh, uh, large-scale restriction uh, has increased and improved significantly in several cities, including in Makassar, the city where uh, I live. And we also start to see uh, improving coordination between different levels of governments in Indonesia, uh, particularly between the central government, provincial government, and district uh, city governments in delivering uh, social safety net uh, programs for uh, people who need uh, some support in the current uh, economic uh, slowdown. So there are some improvement, even though uh, uh, huge challenges uh, still uh, remain in, in uh, many parts of Indonesia, considering the complexity of the uh, nation in terms of uh, big number of populations and also uh, the archipelago, the thousands of islands, and also some other uh, socio-economic uh, factors such as inequality uh, and also the large number of Indonesia's workforce working in the informal uh, economy that uh, uh, hinder uh, many of them to employ uh, consistent uh, preventative uh, uh, measures, including uh, complying to government's uh, instruction for working from home and other uh, preventative measures. What do you think prompted the government to make these stronger enforcement measures? Because earlier on, uh, there was a very strong message from President Joko Widodo that he didn't want to do too much of a lockdown and that he, it seemed, was concerned more about the economic impact than uh, the impact of the potential spread of the virus. Crucial uh, related to uh, what you mentioned, the large scale of uh, people movement during the holy month of Ramadan. Dr. Yuli, if I could go to you, because you, you are amongst, uh, well, in your community of doctors and scientists, this has been obviously a significant topic of discussion for you. How do you feel now about the changes that the um, government has made? Uh, enforcing stricter measures on the movement of people and and access to health facilities. Beg your pardon. Oh, sorry, Ibu. I'll I'll ask that I again. Hear you. Sorry, sorry. That's all right. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Ah, great. Thank you. Just wondering, you're all in oh, a community. Um, can you, can you? We can hear you, yes. Can you repeat the question? Absolutely, yes. What What are the can concerns the been? Uh, Helen? There have been many concerns in your community of scientists and health um, workers around the government policy. How do you feel at the moment about the direction the government's taking. Do you think they are listening more to the science now? I believe so. At this time, they seems to hear us uh, more. Um, everybody um, expect the uh, containment, uh, which was not approved at the beginning of the uh, epidemic, but now, uh, it is now going on here in Indonesia. In some uh, areas, we have a large scale um, social distancing. Uh, it is uh, running now, but a lot of problem uh, still happening. Um, actually, the um, government, the, the local government asked for um, more stringent uh, measures. They asked for um, public transportation to stop, but it's still uh, going on. Um, up until uh, yesterday, I believe, uh, the mudik uh, has already banned, but no law enforcement, uh, no law enforcement. So it is difficult for the um, community to follow 
the rules they want to go home they don't have any uh, job in the city so it's quite difficult for uh, for us um, to follow the uh, containment at the time professor jilks in your experience how important are these sorts of measures and I guess, how do you build community legitimacy around them? So these measures are very important and I think there's universal agreement and consensus across the scientific communities and in most countries across leader, political leaders and religious leaders indeed that these measures are important. But they have to be based on community consent. And this is gained by clear communication by leaders around what is necessary and why it is necessary. And that has happened in Australia. I think there has been very clear um, leadership and communication of the need to enter some form of social isolation to prevent community transmission of uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus which causes uh, COVID-19 disease. This is uh, as well as the fact that Australia has very, very carefully enforced restrictions um, and closed the borders essentially to try and prevent people infected in countries where the virus is transmitting quite rapidly from bringing that virus into Australia. The other thing about community consent that's been extremely important is that people have seen on the international news and television scenes of terrible problems in Italy and then Spain and Europe, and more recently, particularly in New York State and New York City in the US. And I think people here have all said, what can we do to stop this happening? And they've understood because the policies have been clearly uh, described and justified by scientists that, and, and doctors and frontline workers why this is necessary. And people have responded and said, yes, we need to do that. We need to do what we can to protect ourselves and our communities and also to try and limit a surge of infection and disease which would threaten our hospital system, which is a problem for everybody, regardless of whether you're infected with the virus and have disease or not. Because while this epidemic is going on, other healthcare issues continue. And one of the really interesting things that's seen in some countries, in Europe in particular, is that people have actually, with normal problems like blood pressure or diabetes or cancer treatment, they've actually been, or going to, to, to their um, community doctors or hospitals for routine tests and screening, they've not been doing it. And it's because partly they're scared that hospitals are places where they might get infected, but also it's to say, we don't want to clog up the healthcare services unnecessarily with our trivial problems when, and, and this is, and they're not actually always trivial, um, and they do need to go to, to, see, health, uh, um, to see health practitioners. Mm -hmm. So that is the sort of extent of community understanding and the need to protect the hospitals and healthcare workers and to do something to make sure in, in Australia we didn't see and repeat those awful scenes in Italy and, and Spain and so on. Mm. Dr. Yulia, if I can pick up on that point around community understanding, do you think that uh, understanding amongst Indonesians has, has been growing and that there is more um, concept of how difficult this is to manage and how serious the situation is? Oh, sorry, Helen. The, it's a delay in the, in, the, in the sound, but I try to catch the, your question uh, about the awareness of the community. It's um, 
it is the characteristic of Indonesian people is very widely varied. Um, some of them are very ignorant. Oh, we're having some internet problems. And what happened to condition today. So um, we can see that uh, some people still go outside, still uh, 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 praying, but in other uh, in other condition, um, a lot of people scare to even to go to the hospital for even if they are already sick, they also put some um, stigma to those who um, found positively uh, positive for COVID. So um, it's very varied um, in Indonesia for uh, the awareness of the uh, or the understanding of the community about the COVID nineteen. So that makes it's uh, more difficult for us to put the right measure for the whole uh, community. Mm. And, and thank you, Ibu. You picked up on the question well and um, appreciate that you, you're battling on everyone accessing the internet at the moment. So it, it makes it tricky, but it's, it's so important to have uh, your understanding and insight. Um, someone who's on the ground, not necessarily in Jakarta, seeing what's happening outside the major cities. You also, uh, you're a doctor, you have patients, you have friends in the hospital system. What is the situation like for them in the health system at the moment? Uh, I believe at the moment uh, the situation is um, better. more uh, special hospital for COVID and uh, more referral hospital. So um, for those who are uh, already sick, um, moderately or severely, uh, at the moment, they still, uh, we can still uh, take them to the hospital, even, um, yeah, sometimes it's difficult to find them. But in the community, we have a suspect patients that needs to be tested for COVID, but yeah, the test is very difficult to access. Mm. Well, let's get back to that. Uh, I do want to bring back uh, Professor Charles at this point, just talking about the disparity of understanding and also the different uh, demographics of the groups the inequality that exists in countries. Professor, you've worked in Africa on HIV, for instance. Uh, th this is a situation that you're quite aware of. What in uh, your experience have you found are some of the challenges in, in a country, say Indonesia, which is diverse, which has a, a large population spread out across many different stratas? So every, every different, com thank you for that question, Helen. Yes, yeah, so every different community will have its leaders and there will be political leaders, there'll be religious leaders, there will be um, leaders um, uh, in, in different respects. And it's really important that they all say the same thing, even if they have slightly different understanding um, of what is going on. And so that consensus has happened in Australia. And I'm not sure from what I was just hearing from uh, Dr. Yulia, whether that has actually happened across all communities and the community leaders in Indonesia. We have here huge inequities in, in Australia. Um, and there is a difference in the um, the education that people have in different communities and therefore how they fully appreciate some of the uh, uh, discussion that is made by experts. But there is general consensus of what you need to do around this agreement on what the problem is and what 
we need to do collectively to prevent uh, big problems with the, the with COVID-19, with the disease, and what um, to protect ourselves and to protect our communities. Mm-hmm. Sends even to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, particularly in the remote and uh, rural area, uh, rural and regional remote areas where they are there's huge anxiety about trying to protect them from the uh, the disease and the virus getting there because they have so much comorbidity and risk factors for getting really severe disease if the virus gets there. Um, and they understand the need to socially isolate and to keep them away from um, all sort um, from people who may be uh, uh, people um, who are at risk of bringing the virus into the communities. So across very different communities, there has been an understanding. And I think here also, all our religious leaders are lined up, whether it's in the mosques, the temples or the churches, and there has been uniformly a closing of places of worship. This was particularly obvious at Easter, which is obviously a very important Christian um, uh, celebration. Um, and it will be interesting, and, and it, I'm sure will happen around Ramadan and it, it, when, the, um, when, the, when, when these feasts are going to be celebrated, that they will be done at home and with respecting social distancing. We are, of course, in Ramadan in Indonesia, which is the precious holy month for people of the Muslim faith. And uh, I know my friends there are doing breaking the fast at home. They're not going out, which uh, is, is a very different situation for them. But, Suri, it's, it's good to have you back. Uh, yeah. Thank you for reconnecting. It it's, brings me to the question I put to you a while ago. You raised concerns that if you were at some point that if uh, actions weren't taken, you were saying there could be between 11,000 up to 70,000 people infected with the coronavirus in Indonesia by now, roughly. We haven't seen that happen. Uh, what's your reading of the current situation and um, what do you think has happened since the time that you made that, that estimate? Yeah, I think it is uh, clearly uh, shown now that uh, Indonesia at the uh phase of exponential growth uh, since uh, mid-march and we are uh, seeing uh, the continuous uh, uh, number of uh, people uh, infected and confirmed uh, through testing uh, even though the number uh, one of our uh, biggest concern is uh, the number of testing in indonesia which is still limited compared to other uh, countries uh, including indonesia but uh, exponential growth is uh, obvious, even though there are several good signs in the last few days. Uh, good signs, even though it is not conclusive yet, there are several impacts of uh, large-scale social restrictions uh, start to show some uh, uh, positive uh, uh, consequences. But there are still some um, uh, uh, work to do, especially in uh improving uh law enforcement uh, provide some incentives and also uh sanctions for people who uh, deliberately uh break uh, the government's uh, uh rule for uh, large social uh, distancing at the same time also to work with the provincial governments to uh, anticipate the large scale of uh, people's uh, mobility during uh, this ramadan because it is not going to be uh, very easy to change people's behavior in relation to rituals uh, for holy month of ramadan but there are several good signs especially between uh, the provincial governments in java uh, they start to see some better uh, coordination to reduce the number and the scale of uh, people's mobility another aspect that should be uh, taken into consideration is to uh, reach uh, uh, people, uh, particularly people below poverty line, to enable them to survive in the current uh, economic slowdown. And uh, there are also several uh, uh, warnings from uh, our colleagues 
particularly from uh, the economists and the social scientists, uh, also to advocate the government to uh, pay attention to uh, the people who are not actually poor by the uh, standardized measure of government, but they are considered as lower middle class. With the current shock, economic shock, many of them are vulnerable uh, to poverty and also need to uh, have access to the current government social safety net uh, program. Mm. And that was definitely a thing that came out strongly in our last webinar, but sorry, about making sure that the government measures measures were targeting those people and including the, the lower middle class. Uh, I'd, I'd like to branch that into the uh, level of testing that's available, um, particularly for those uh, who are unable to access the health services easily. If I could go to you, Dr. Yulia, um, you have some concerns around the testing regime at the moment. Can you just explain to us what those are? Yes. Um, um, let's see the number, as uh, Pasudi already mentioned. Um, we have a very low uh, proportion of tests in Indonesia. It's about 300 tests per million of people in Indonesia. It's very low. It's only half of uh, the Philippines and one-tenth of Malaysia, if I'm not mistaken. It is very low. As I already mentioned before, a lot of suspected patients waiting for the test. So, because it is difficult to get uh, the uh, appropriate test, the PCR test, we are uh, now use the less reliable uh, test, the antibody rapid test. Um, uh, we have now, it is quite uh, reliable for those who are ill in the hospital to Oh, it definitely has frozen. Um, if I can paraphrase, I know that uh, Dr. Yulia's concern is that there is a quicker test that's not as expensive uh, that's being used to test when it in fact should be used to test people who have already been in hospital rather than giving uh, a an answer to whether someone has had the coronavirus or not. Are you back, Ibu Yulia? Can you hear me? Yes, 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 I'm back. Continue. The internet's very bad. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned before, a lot of suspected patients waiting for the test, the PCR test. Uh, so then we move to the less reliable test, the antibody test. The test actually needs a lot of study, a further study to be used as a diagnostic test. Um, it is okay if it is used in the uh, hospital uh, condition. But now, the awareness of the people is increasing. They want to know their own condition. So the healthy people try to test themselves with this uh, rapid antibody test. We know that it is not reliable. The false positive and the false negative is very high. So if it is positive, it put a very bad depression for the subject. They um waiting for the uh, PCR test, but the psychological condition is dropping. It's mm -hmm. bad for them. But if it is negative, we don't know whether it is a really negative or a false negative. But then the negative people quite happy and then they feel that they don't have the disease. It's very, very dangerous for the containment of the disease. Mm. They can neglect the measures prevent the um, spreading of the disease. So, um, yeah, I I want the, the, the test, the rapid test to be used only in the hospital condition, not to screen the healthy people. Mm -hmm. That's what um, happening now in Indonesia. 
And that actually ties in nicely with a question that we have uh, from Peter Fanning, who's the treasurer of the Indonesia-Australia Business Council. He was asking about that um, ability to access widespread antigen testing. Um, is it just that the system needs more money or more expertise? What do you think would help overcome this problem, Dr. Yulia? Okay. Yeah. Um, the antigen um, test, um, yes, it is expensive and it takes more time to uh, get the uh, result. What the problem here, um, first of all, the um, expertise to get the swab is very limited. That's the first one. The second one, the VTM, the uh, virus transfer uh, media, is also limited. So mm -hmm. a lot of people, a lot of patients have to wait for the uh, VTM. And then it should be prepared before it can be uh, run in the PCR. That's also the problem because the facility is also limited. The PCR machine is quite uh, a lot in Indonesia and we have a um, new um, machine coming. So uh, the PCR itself is not very difficult. Uh, a lot of uh, laboratories can do it, but then to confirm that it is a positive COVID, we should do the sequencing. And that's the culprit. Now, um, I don't know how many uh, lab in Indonesia are uh, not capable. I believe a lot of uh, laboratories capable of doing that, but um, um, what do you call it? Um, Yes, um, <laughs> eligible, eligible to run the uh, sequencing. Uh, I don't know how many, but uh, at the um, beginning, it's only one lab in Litbangkes, uh, and it is very difficult to access. So um, basically, the 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 problem is. Um, uh, the competency of getting the swab and then the uh, VTM and the um, processing before uh, the PCR it is the most um, difficult to be accessed. Just briefly going to you, Professor Charles, Canisley, there's a huge need. Um, well, well, first of all, I'll say that there is another um, issue that, that does need to be thought about in testing, and that's the protection of those people who are doing the tests. So that personal mm -hmm. protection equipment, which in many countries is in real short supply, and you can't really expect yes. people... Um, the health workers who've been trained to do the, the, the special swabs and, and collect them, you can't really expect them to do it on people who are coughing or uh, sneezing and who are uh, unwell, uh, which is why they've come forward for testing. And this is a problem around the world, the lack of masks, gowns, gloves, um, advisors if you don't have the, the goggles um, and the gloves and it, it's um, a big problem so I, I think I should just say that I, I suspect that there is a problem as well as just the testing for the personal protective equipment. I think Australia could be able to help um, and we really should help one of our nearest neighbours in terms of um, assisting the improving the laboratory network two aspects of it that as we have it here in Australia that's where you collect the samples and the problems with personal protective equipment PPE has been more acute in the 
clinics in the community or uh, the GP surgeons or the primary care facilities, um, which uh, is one of the major places where people go for their test. Um, and um, then what, what happens at, in the major hospitals, which also run testing services, which tend to be able to get to the hospital pool of that personal protective equipment and are able much more quickly to get the sample correctly to the laboratory in the correct in, in the right time so the sample itself doesn't uh, lose um, any quality um, so i think australia really should be supporting the strengthening of the laboratory network somehow assisting in the protection of those people who as health workers who are taking the swabs and um, improving the um, number of kits that are available. And this really does mean um, further assistance to the government of Indonesia and the different provinces to improve the um, extent of that coverage of a, of a trained laboratory network that can do the tests. Mm -hmm. And Professor Charles, while I, I have you with us, we've had a question from the audience from Sarah Fu at the University of Queensland Business School. Um, she is wondering whether the total lockdown, like the one that is being done in India, would be feasible to be implemented in Indonesia, given the current condition. And I'll go to our other guests as well on that. Um, I lived for four years in India before I joined the University of Queensland and I was working for the UN there and I was horrified the suddenness and I don't want to be too critical of the government of India but I have to say the, 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 the brutality in which that lockdown was extremely suddenly implemented with very poor communication around it and causing massive population movements that hadn't actually been seen in India since partitioning when India became an independent nation, when Pakistan and India um, emerged as countries and um, as separate countries. And there were terrible movements of people and they've, the, the repeat has been seen. People going back to their village and actually um, really not able to impose um, to practice any forms of social isolation in these mass migrations. I think it went very badly personally. Um, I would hope that, that any of the lessons that were, were obvious and apparent from what was done in India would be um, looked at very carefully by uh, the political authorities and of course the health um, uh, authorities in Indonesia before anything of that scale was contemplated. And that if it was gonna happen, and I, I have to say, I'm not convinced it's necessary at the moment in Indonesia, if it was gonna be implemented, you really do have to think about the economic consequences of this, because the poor will be the most badly affected because they will lose immediately their livelihoods. And the poor are, often very, have very limited access to any social uh, net, um, networks and um, any social services and protect, uh, economic protection. Mm. Dr. Suri, I think we have our connection back with you, which is uh, wonderful news. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, and I put this question to you earlier today because I was just going to check that you saw the report from Reuters News Organisation. Um, which uh, said that more than 2,200 Indonesians have died with uh, acute symptoms of COVID-19, but were not recorded as victims of the disease. And that's from a, a review of data um, from the country's provinces. Now, currently the death toll stands at a bit over 750, I think, um, but they're saying it's much larger than that. What do you make of those kinds of numbers? Yeah, I think it is also very uh, uh, obvious from the beginning that we have a problem with uh, under-reporting uh, uh, due uh, to what we uh, have previously discussed, uh, the uh, low uh, ratio of testing. 
compared to the total population in uh, Indonesia. Uh, and uh, this underreporting phenomenon should be taken into consideration very seriously by the government. So uh, there are several uh, academic uh, associations in the last few days also advocate the government to uh, focus and to uh, document uh, the data for those uh, uh, in the hospital uh, undertaking treatment with important comorbidities. And I think there are two uh, very important comorbidities uh, in relation to uh, death uh, rate uh, for COVID-19, uh, diabetes and also cardiovascular. And these two uh, major comorbidities should be uh, carefully uh, uh, recorded in the uh, hospital so we can uh, reduce the gap between the, the actual death and uh, the formal uh, reporting uh, that we have. And it is also not very uh, surprising uh, if we also remember the recent Indonesian Basic Health Survey, the 2018 Indonesian uh, Basic Health Survey, or uh, commonly known in Indonesia as uh, RISCESDAS, who indicated very clearly that diabetes mellitus and cardiovascular are two top uh, diseases at the moment. And the, com uh, the comorbidities between these two uh, with COVID-19 is uh, very uh, close, uh, particularly because uh, diabetes uh, can uh, uh, very uh, rapidly deteriorate uh, uh, immunity for uh, people and also uh, deteriorate the function of uh, vital uh, organ, uh, such as heart, uh, lung, uh, kidney, or, or, or brain and uh, blood vessels. Mm -hmm. So these uh, comorbidities should be taken as a proxy to uh, reduce the gap between uh, the formal uh, recorded uh, death rate and uh, with uh, the actual one that uh, happened on the ground. Mm -hmm. Professor Charles Jilks, I'll bring you in here, just um, looking at that comorbidity issue. Of course, Indonesia also has a high smoking rate. Will, will that affect the uh, number of deaths from coronavirus? So if, if we look at the, the best available data on that, it's come from China um, and the early stages in Wuhan and Hubei province, where it was very clear that the people who were getting severe COVID-19 disease and then dying of it, there was a significant preponderance of men in that. And the, one of the explanations that the Chinese have, have made of their data is that smoking is one of the major risks for that and or one of the main explanations as to why men were disproportionately getting severe disease and then actually sadly disproportionately dying. China, very few women smoke, it's mainly men. There is also the added problem of uh, industrial pollution in many of the factories and um, other places of employment where again men have much more exposure to um, noxious chemicals um, in their work environment. The general problem of air pollution which is common across big cities like Jakarta, Beijing, Sydney during the smoke and, and, the, bar, and the fires that we had that is experienced by everybody. So that isn't a risk factor. So I think smoking is the number one reason for that um, difference in morbidity and mortality. Um, and I suspect that when the um, uh, when colleagues in Indonesia start to look at their own data, that they will also see this preponderance of men and that smoking be one of the major issues that can explain that difference. Dr. Yulia, do you have any observations on, on that, on the comorbidity? Uh, 
I have, I didn't um, treat many patients, uh, especially not the COVID one. But uh, yes, that is what we are believe the comorbidity in Indonesia. Uh, smoking, uh, diabetes, and um, hypertension, which leads to cardiovascular diseases, is very high. So, yeah, actually, we expect uh, more uh, case and more uh, fatal cases, uh, as already mentioned by Pasudi mm. earlier. And a question has been raised in the panel uh, looking at statistical reporting um, and the need, some of the, the different practices, I guess, around quick burial, um, or conducting autopsies and that kind of thing. Um, and also, interestingly, there has been, initially there was some stigma associated uh, with having had the coronavirus or a member of your family dying from it which may, might have complicated things. Is is that still the case and how much of an issue is that? How much is it an issue that you um, of generating a greater understanding about this disease and not having people um, shunning others because of it but finding a way to help? Dr Yulia, if you'd like to go and then I'll ask um, Dr Sudi. Oh, okay. Thank you. Uh, um, yeah. Um, we are still facing the, the stigma for um, those conditions, not only for uh, the, the disease uh, patient, but also for those who work in the hospital. So the, the stigma is very wide and it is because of the I go back to the characteristic of Indonesian people who are uh, very ignorant or easily panic. So um, rumors say that um, the the death body still um, a lot of. Um, community refused to wear it in uh, their neighborhood. Um, condition goes to the nurses um, in mm -hmm. some uh, cities are also uh, banned to go to their home. So they are forced to stay in the hospital. But thankfully, um, some of the um, government already um, prepared the uh, hotels for them to stay during the uh, epidemic, during um, their time served in the hospital, so they don't have to go to the family, to go to the, uh, their home, but to the um, hotel that are prepared uh, for the um, prevention of the spreading of the disease. Mm. I believe it is very important for them. Yeah, still we, we, we face the stigma, but that's what we can do up to mm. this point. And so there have been some early murmurings, I guess, that Indonesia feels as though it is uh, winning the battle in some areas on reducing the spread of coronavirus. What are you hearing? And, and we have a question. Uh, which is, is basically when do you think uh, the restrictions will be listed and uh, will be lifted, sorry, and Indonesia can go back to normal? Yeah. Uh, before uh, responding to the questions, I would like to uh, follow up uh, the issue of stigma that uh, was uh, discussed uh, mm -hmm. by uh, Dr. Julia previously. I think uh, stigma and uh, discrimination uh, is uh, was very common, especially uh, in the first uh, few weeks uh, after the announcement of the first case in Indonesia, and uh, mostly due to the uh, ignorance or lack of understanding about the nature of the uh, of the virus. 
but this current uh, stigma start to uh, uh, be reduced particularly when several uh, prominent figure who publicly declared that uh, they were uh, infected and, and undertook treatment and 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 also experience experience uh, uh, a good recovery one of them is actually the former uh, vice chancellor of Hasanuddin University who was uh, confirmed as a positive case few weeks ago but uh, fortunately with very mild uh, uh, clinical symptoms and he recovered uh, rapidly and since that he uh, contributed to uh, communicate uh, to the public that uh, uh, this uh, uh, the, uh, stigma should not be attached to uh, the people who who were tested and that we can overcome uh, this especially if we have a good uh, uh, immunity uh, and to the second questions uh, yes uh, people start to uh, asking uh, very basic questions about uh, how to get to the uh, normal life and there are several uh, prediction uh, released by the government or uh, released by the community uh, of uh, scientists the presidents uh, uh, yesterday or two days ago uh, uh, for example uh, announced that he hopes that uh, by june we start to see uh, the good signs of uh, significant uh decrease of the case and we can start to anticipate uh, a, a normal life by the second semester of, of, of the year but uh while this kind of optimistic uh aspiration is important i also uh, think that we need to balance it with risk communication uh to uh encourage uh community participations to uh participate uh, more significantly to preventative measures such as uh, complying to uh, physical and social distancing uh, as well as to other uh, uh, preventative uh, uh, measures such as washing hand and also for the uh, hospital and laboratory setting to improve uh, the ratio of testing that uh, we still have uh, uh, very low uh, at the at the moment so uh, I think uh, as I've mentioned previously, I was just going to jump in because you mentioned the, the laboratory testing, which Professor Jilts uh, raised earlier. Um, do you think it would help if Australia did find a way to assist Indonesia in upgrading uh, the laboratories or helping them to get to um, the standard they need to, to carry out more testing and to also assist the staff working in those laboratories, for instance? Yes, yes. Uh, we start to discuss that uh, actually through several uh, uh, media. Uh, for example, through the Indonesian Young Academy of Sciences, uh, it is the equivalent of uh, uh, Australia's Mid-Career Scientist Association in Australia for uh, Professor Charles' uh, uh, concern. Uh, we start to see many, many of the members of the Indonesian Young Academy uh, are Australian alumni. They did their masters or their PhD in an Australian university, and we start to communicate with our colleagues in Australia or also in other countries uh, about the need to uh, enlarge uh, international collaboration to strengthen uh, laboratory and testing infrastructure in uh, middle-income countries such as uh, Indonesia. I believe, uh, I believe, as Dr. Julia previously explained, that actually we have. Uh, some good uh, human capital for that, but we need to uh, to to strengthen it and also to consider to distribute these uh, human uh, resources uh, not just to Java but also to other provinces outside uh, Java where the facilities and the human resources are less available. Mm -hmm. So I think. Uh, uh, scientific collaboration between, among among academia, including between Indonesia's uh, academia and Australian academia, will be very important to uh, prepare us uh, to address the uh, testing uh, and laboratory infrastructure. Mm. And Dr. Yulia, just briefly, I mean that that's a great initiative. Those links between Australia and Indonesia, we sometimes forget how strong they are, especially from graduates from universities, um, and the strong personal links that are, that are still there that we can use to help each other. Um, 
could you comment on Professor Charles's idea too of, of collaboration between the countries on the laboratory testing and, and helping with staff? Yes, uh, thank you for the question. Actually, um, I believe that we need a lot of help. Indonesia is very wide and um, the resources are pulled in uh, Java. So with the MUDIC, we are expecting a lot of uh, cases out of Java and it needs a lot of resource to uh, combat them. So um, yeah, of course, support from every angle is very should be very welcome. I'm not the one who can uh, give the judgment on that, but I believe um, yes, we need a lot of help, especially as Pasudi already mentioned. Uh, we have uh, four or five um, major um, islands in Sumatra, Kalimantan, Sulawesi, and Papua. All of those islands needs a lot of uh, support to face the next wave of uh, the disease of the pan of the epidemic uh, due to the um, the mudik, the traditional uh, coming. Yes, Let's I agree with that. Apologies, Ivo. Yes, and given that even though the governments have asked people not to travel for the traditional return to home, it's obviously happening to some extent. And we've got quite a few questions around that, uh, you know, and, and social distancing. How can we how can we manage this? Perhaps if I could just end briefly with you, uh, Professor Charles, if we are still seeing moving, if we're still seeing people moving out to those regional and, and rural areas at this point, when do you think we might see an increase in cases if, if they are carrying the, the virus? What sort of a timeline we're looking at here um, for that to show up as to whether or not stopping the mordic has been successful or not? Um, if indeed there's a large movement of people who are um, infected already with the virus and may not be showing much symptoms, you, the that will have a pretty quick effect in the communities, the villages, or the or the towns where uh, people are going back to. Um, whether it will be noticed quickly will very much depend on the alertness of the public health and the clinical teams there and their access to testing. It really just does come down to testing, testing, testing. And one of the problems uh, I think that, that there is in, in Indonesia about really why the laboratory services do need strengthening and that human capital that is really quite strong in places tends to be concentrated in the cities. And people are moving from the cities to areas where there is much more limited uh, ability to, uh, where the laboratory services are much weaker. And there are fewer laboratory technicians who are supported to work in the laboratories, to use the skills that they may have acquired through training programs. Mm. We'll have and, to... uh, that will be the worry. So yeah. it, it will happen, but it may not be identified. Then you'll have to have indirect measures of um, disease, uh, which is what um, where you, you're, you're having a different case definition of sort of a COVID-like illness, severe pneumonia-like problems or severe influenza-like illness, which you will have to use as a surrogate for real COVID infect, uh, coronavirus infection and COVID-19 disease, um, because you haven't got the tests there to confirm it. So much more that we could discuss. Uh, it's raised so many issues, but we do have to leave it there, unfortunately. Uh, I'd like to thank the panellists for their time today. It's been much appreciated. I realise how busy you all are. Uh, to Dr Yulia in uh, Surabaya. Have I got that correct? Yes, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> in my head for some reason. But thank you so much. I know how busy you are in your practice. Um, Professor Charles, same. Thank You're you. Welcome. And Dr. Nice 
so incredibly busy and thank you for persevering with uh, some difficult internet connections but there is a sign of the times and we just have to persevere and we thank everyone who has stayed with us to listen to that discussion. Um, please rate our webinar. We'd love to hear back from you about how useful it was, uh, about the format, about anything that you'd like to comment on. Um, if you've got some ideas for future webinars, that would be fantastic. I will let you know that we've just confirmed that we are having our next webinar on Wednesday, May the 13th. And one of the guest panelists is Dr. Stephanie Fahey, who is of course the CEO of Austrade, the Australian uh, government's trade authorities. So we're going to be talking again on more economic aspects of coronavirus between Australia and Indonesia. I hope you can join us for that. And thank you for your company for the past hour. <laughs>